Wow, I didn't even have to say you may be seated. I guess we get in routines, we get a little used to things. Well, our routine right now is we're in the book of Exodus. We continue this morning in that book in our series entitled, A Life of Freedom. Because the book of Exodus, as you know, is about God setting His people free. And really, the whole Bible is about God setting people free. Well, a life of freedom is rooted in something central to the Gospel. Something foundational to the Gospel. And we will consider that something today as our story unfolds. Our text this morning is Exodus chapter 6, verses 1-8. through I know that's a bit further into the story than the bulletin says, but you can find it on page 48 of the Pew Bible if you'll be using that. So Exodus 6 this week, and then next week we'll pick up in chapter 9 or 10. But as we come before our Lord, let's take a moment to pray. O oh, gracious God, we need You to do a work in us today. We thank You for Your Word. And we know, we pray, we confess that we need You to awaken our hearts. That we might hear the truth. That we might be transformed by the Gospel. Would You by Your grace have mercy on us this morning and open us to Your Word and Your Word to us. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week we were in chapter 3, where God revealed Himself to Moses at a burning bush. Revealed His name. The Lord, Yahweh, the One who causes to exist. And called Moses into leadership with Him to be a part of of God's delivering the Hebrew people who, as you remember, are in slavery in Egypt. And since we are jumping to chapter 6, let me tell you a little bit about what has transpired in chapters 4 and 5. Moses has heard this call from God, but he's been quite reluctant. He is questioning. He is struggling. And finally gets to a place of taking that step of faith, trusting God, and with his brother Aaron... Together they return to Egypt. And they go to the king of Egypt, to Pharaoh, with confidence in the Lord, and they say, the Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh laughs. And not only does Pharaoh laugh, but he takes out frustration on the Hebrew slaves. He makes them work harder than they have ever worked in their 400 years of bondage to slavery in Egypt. And so the Hebrew people become bitter. And they begin to blame Moses and Aaron. And at the end of chapter 5, it's as if they are cursing Moses and Aaron for ever coming and making a proclamation as bold as let my people go because God wants to have them come worship. And so as we move into Exodus 6, let's pick up at the end of chapter 5 in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, 
Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Well, God has allowed Moses to have a sense of failure so that Moses would not make the same mistake twice. You see, if you remember the story, and for us it's only a couple of weeks ago, but for Moses it's 40 years ago, he was once already in Egypt. And at one point acted if maybe it was he himself, Moses, who would be the deliverer of Israel. And he killed an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave and then fled to Midian when there were those who were hunting him down to take his life. And that's where he has been the last 40 years. But now picking up in verse 1 of chapter 6, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, Yahweh, the One who causes to exist. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by My name, the Lord, I did not make Myself known to them. I also established My covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered My covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be My people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Well, here as we enter into chapter 6, in the span of just eight verses, God uses the personal pronoun I 18 times. As if we don't get the point. He is making sure that we get it with an exclamation point. It is God Himself, the Lord, Yahweh, who is the Deliverer of His people. And now, we come to that central something that I mentioned earlier. A central truth. A central act. A central reality on which all of the Gospel rests. And it's found in verses 4 and 5. God says, I also established My covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered My covenant. Well, here we run into the important word covenant. What is a covenant? And maybe there's some of you already thinking, isn't there a more modern word you could use here? This seems a bit archaic. 
Well, I decided this week I would ask folks around the church as I ran into them, say somebody comes up to you and says, hey, don't you go to Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church? Yeah, you should come sometime. Well, before I come, I think I have a bit of an idea about this grace thing. And I know Presbyterian is how you mark yourselves denominationally, but what's this word covenant? Well, how would you answer? I know some people, I think, started seeing me and turning the other way this week. They were afraid I was going to ask them. Well, covenant is a, it's a tough concept for us. And this is because our culture doesn't have anything quite like the covenants of uh, the ancient Near East. And yet, covenant is central to the Gospel. It is foundational to it, to our faith. Now, for us today, many of us are, are we're much more familiar with contracts and consumer relationships than we are with covenants. Now, contracts and consumer relationships are fine. They're good. They're helpful. When Heather and I moved here and we... We bought a house here in Williamsburg. We had a contract on it. And it was helpful. It protected us as the buyer. It protected the gentleman that was the seller. And it it provided for us a structure for a legal transaction to take place. But at the heart of a contract is the protection of the individual self. A protection of one's rights. But a covenant is something much more profound. A covenant is much more than a contract, though not less than one. Because you see, a covenant is founded on relationship. Relationship is the focus, not the individual self. It's a solemn binding agreement between two parties. And yes, there are expectations and commitments in a covenant. There are benefits if the covenant is kept. There are consequences if the covenant is not kept. And this is what in the ancient Near Eastern covenants they would call the covenant blessings and curses. And when a couple gets married, it's supposed to be a covenant. But unfortunately today, it's often treated as if it were a contract. Now, One of the people that I asked about the name, Grace Covenant, what would you say if someone came up to you and said, so what's a covenant? I asked Jamie Wilmoth, our children's ministry director, and she cracked this big smile. And I just waited on the curveball she was about to throw me. This is what Jamie said. A covenant is a relationship that God establishes with His people and guarantees by His Word. Listen to that again. A covenant is a relationship that God establishes with His people and guarantees by His Word. Well, you better believe my jaw dropped. I said, Jamie, you are preaching this Sunday. And she took off and ran the other way, so here I am. But then Jamie, with her smile, confessed that this actually comes straight from the children's catechism. You know, that was so encouraging to me. These are the truths that our children are learning to articulate. And I cannot think of a better way to summarize a covenant than the way our children's catechism does. A covenant is a relationship that God establishes with His people and guarantees by His Word. 
No better way to summarize that gospel truth. And we'll come back to that in just a little bit. But for right now, it takes us back into verse 7. I will take you to be My people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The essence of God's covenant summarized here. Something that is echoed and repeated throughout all of Scripture. Literally, from Genesis to Revelation. I will be your God, and you will be My people. I will be your God, and you will be My people. And in theology, this covenant is referred to as God's covenant of grace. Or, God's grace covenant. Hence, the name of our church. But where do we first encounter this covenant? Where was this covenant made? Well, to understand what is going on here in Exodus, and and really to help us understand our entire journey through the book of Exodus, and to really understand what's going going on throughout all of Scripture, we must go back to Genesis. In Genesis 12, God promises to bless Abram, later to be called Abraham. God declares, all nations on earth will be blessed through you. And then in Genesis 15, God makes this covenant with Abram. First, God takes Abram outside at night. It's dark. He tells Abram to look up at the stars and number them if you can. Millions and millions of stars. And Abram is looking. And God says, Abram, so shall be your offspring. And then God tells Abram to bring him a young cow, a female goat, a ram, a dove, and a young pigeon. Abram collects these animals, and then, without God saying anything else, he does something that seems quite peculiar to us. It may even seem a bit repulsive, but Abram takes these animals and he cuts them in half and places each half opposite the other, leaving an aisle between them. Half of the dead animals on this side, and the other half on this side. Now, it seems odd to us. Why would Abram do this? Because it wasn't odd to Abram. He knew what was going on. It was part of his culture. God was initiating a covenant with him. A solemn binding agreement with their relationship at its center. Now today we live in a a more of a written culture. A record-keeping culture. Uh, A lot of handwritten stuff and of course now uh, a lot of computer uh, data. We, We save it on disks, we save it on hard drives, but very much a written culture. Well, in that day, it was more an an oral and visual culture. A storytelling culture. And so, in this act that seems to be a bizarre act to us, in this act, a story is unfolding. A true story. And so, I want to pick up for just a moment, uh, just after Abraham, uh, Abram has arranged the animal pieces and is waiting on further instruction from God. So, I'm going to pick up in verse 12. You can just listen if you would like. 
verse 12 of Genesis 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be slaves there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And do you you see, you, you catch what's happening there? The prophecy of the Egyptian slavery for 400 years, and then the Exodus. And then picking up in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Or literally, on that day, God cut a covenant with Abram. If you let your imagination get a hold of you, this is quite a graphic scene. I learned earlier this morning in adult education, as we were looking at, uh, at this hymn by William uh, Cooper, Cowper, however you pronounce that name, Cooper, okay, it is William Cooper, uh, a fountain, there's a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Uh, we learned that there are some churches that have taken this out of their hymnals because of its graphic nature. But brothers and sisters, we cannot remove the graphic nature of what is going on here because we will lose the Gospel. Because in this graphic scene, there is an expression of relational exclusivity. I will be your God and you will be My people. And in this act, there is a dramatization of the consequences of covenant breaking. In other words, if one of the parties is not faithful to fulfill the covenant. And so we see a, a ritual identification with the cut animal pieces. And we, we read about that. We first uh, really get a picture of that in Jeremiah uh, chapter 34, verse 18. And the men who transgressed My covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before Me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. In other words, if you do not keep this covenant, may you be like these animals. Well, there are two stunning occurrences in the making of this covenant. First, as we, as we consider ancient Near Eastern covenants, first is this, rarely, if ever, did a king pass through the pieces. And yet here, God Himself appearing as billowing smoke and a blazing torch passes through the pieces. And second, the king's subjects, uh, the lesser party within that covenant, would always pass through the cut pieces. But here, Abram does not. God does not allow Abram to pass through. Do you see what's happening? God is taking the covenant oath for both of them. In other words, God says, if I fail, I pay the penalty. 
And if you fail, I pay the penalty. Abram, I will bless you no matter what, even if I must be torn to pieces. Even if my immortality must become mortal, even if I must shed blood, I will bless all peoples through you, no matter what. You see, though we were created to be in relationship with God, because of our sin, we are unable to obey. We are unable to keep the covenant. Thus, in and of ourselves, we are unable to be in relationship with a holy God. But Paul explains in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to all peoples. As one commentator put it, God fulfilled the condition of the law so that He could love us unconditionally. Jesus' perfect life earned blessing. Jesus' sacrificial death took the curse so that we could receive that blessing. Wow! Amazing! Good news! And again, I cannot think of a better way to summarize it than our children's catechism. A covenant is a relationship that God establishes with His people and guarantees by His Word. His spoken Word. His written Word. The living Word. Jesus. So where does that leave us? What does covenant keeping look like for us today? Well, if you were here last week, you know that Brandon made fun of himself, and so I thought this week I would follow suit and I would make fun of him this week. <laughs> Actually, I'm just going to take a little pot shot at his, uh, uh, his father-in-law, Bill Greer, uh, Elizabeth's dad. Heather and I have talked about this numerous times. We will never forget being at their wedding, but the night before, of course, being at the rehearsal dinner, uh, the summer of 1997. And it was time for toasts at the rehearsal dinner, and Bill Greer got up. And it was the longest toast I have ever heard in my entire life. It was longer than the sermon. But don't get me wrong, it was not boring in the least. I know way too many details about the day that Elizabeth was born that I could not share them with you. But that's actually not what stands out to me the most. Because what I really will never forget is the way that he ended that toast. He said, Brandon and Elizabeth, tomorrow you will make a covenant with one another and with God before God's people. You will exchange wedding vows. You will make promises that you cannot keep apart from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is poured out through this covenant of grace. We enter this covenant through faith. 
We live out the life-giving, freedom-giving reality of this covenant through faith. Are you living in the reality of God's covenant love? Or are you working hard to earn God's favor? Or maybe you are ridden with guilt because of continual failure. Trying to earn favor. Beating yourself up because of failure. But you know, I bet if I asked you, do you know that God loves you? You would say, oh yeah, I know God loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. But I wonder if deep down for some of us, what we really mean by that, and what maybe we have never articulated is, well, God tolerates me. He puts up with me. Maybe one day when when I'm fully conformed to the likeness of Jesus, maybe one day He'll love me. Friends, that is not the Gospel. That is not the covenant reality. Jesus died, gave His life for us to fulfill a covenant because He loves us. Because He loves you. He made, again literally, cut this covenant of grace. And through faith, you live in that covenant. You live in that reality, trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross, bringing the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. Again, we enter this covenant through faith. And we live out the freedom-giving nature of this covenant through faith. Faith in Christ alone. Through faith, we are given Christ's fidelity to the covenant. Jesus is our covenant keeper. Thanks be to God. Amen.